I'm turning this evening to Psalm 65 and verse 1. Psalm 65 verse 1. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. And our title is, Why God Hears Some Prayers and Not Others. And the answer to that question is here in this brief psalm. And we look at it this evening. It has a very curious beginning. It is a psalm of David, King David. It is a kind of testimony to his experience in prayer. But it's much more a kind of sermon in poetry. It's urging the people to pray to God and commending the practice of prayer. But he begins strangely, you might think. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. And literally, the Hebrew says something like, Praise is silent for thee, O God, in Zion. That's the beginning. Strange words. Praise is silent. And we begin right there. And uh, it's necessary for us to understand this. There had been, I think, some great national calamity, whether it was famine or whether it was war, attackers, uh, it's not clear in the psalm, but there had been, it would appear, some national calamity, and the people had at last turned to prayer for deliverance, for the protection of God. And their prayers had been answered. And this is a kind of celebratory psalm, remembering this event, this occasion. And it begins, therefore, with these words. Praise is silent for thee, O God. And the explanation of them is this. The people now crowd into the temple, all their various local places of worship. But many crowds come up to Jerusalem, to the temple. And when they assemble, when they gather, the proceedings begin as they always did in times of national solemn, national moments. They begin with silence, silent meditation. That was the practice. We continue it in a sense, perhaps to token a sense, even to this day in churches. Or at least that's the custom. We come together and we're quiet. We don't jabber, chatter, mirth, happiness, glee. Those things may be legitimate, but not here. We're silent because we're preparing for worship. Praise is silent before thee. We're waiting upon God. There's a great pause before the tremendous acclamation of praise to God and thanksgiving for national deliverance. There's the solemn pause. We humble ourselves and we're waiting upon God. The attitude to prayer. We come into the church as they went into the temple, not only to praise and to pray, but to listen, to listen to God's word, to what God had to say through the scriptures. So you begin with a kind of uh, quietening of your heart 
and preparing of yourself. And that's the whole idea in these words. Praise is silent for thee, O God. But it's praise that's going to be offered first. And here's the first clue to the answer of the question. Why are some prayers not heard and others heard? Well, there has to be a beginning with praise. Of course, there are emergency prayers where we go straight into our request. But properly speaking, prayer begins with praise. Prayer means pleading, petition. Praise means credit, acclamation. We give honour and glory and thanks to the Lord. And that's how it begins. What kind of prayer is going to be answered? First of all, the prayer of somebody who comes with deep respect for God and acknowledgement of him and his might and majesty. You start with his glory. You start with his greatness. You start by crediting him, honouring him. Praise, that's the first element of prayer. But it waits quietly, and then it's expressed. The heart is prepared. This is a matter for sincerity and earnestness and giving to God his honour and glory. Thanks for your existence, thanks to him for his mighty power, acknowledging his holiness, acknowledging his wisdom and his supreme knowledge. You come with respect to God. Now there are prayers that are much more likely to be answered. You don't rush and treat him as nobody, as of no account, and just gabble out what you want, what you need, what you wish for, as though he's nothing and he's not to be considered. You're his created being. You're his subject. You have to acknowledge him and own him. So the very opening words of the psalm tell us something about the setting for valid prayer. Praise is silent, waiteth, for thee, O God, the translation is very good because it's picked up the meaning and applied it. Praise waiteth on thee or for thee, O God, in Zion. And unto thee shall the vow be performed. What's that? A vow? A pledge? I thought we were talking about prayer. Well, there's no valid prayer without a pledge without a vow. Every request is accompanied by an undertaking. Lord, grant this and that, and I will obey thee and serve thee, yield my life to thee. Prayer goes hand in hand with the commitment of myself and the vow. We're learning in these words of David prayers that are answered. Prayer without a vow, give me what I want. Solve this problem for me. Give me my, a good exam result. Make me well. No calling upon him, no honouring of him, no vow to him, no commitment to him. Doesn't work. 
And you see it in the very structure of David's words here. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, the second verse, God hears prayer. If it's in the right spirit, if it's valid, he hears prayer. Unto thee shall all flesh come. David is a Jewish king, but he says here, all flesh, Gentiles also, people of all nationalities, people of all so-called classes, people from all lands, rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people, all flesh shall come. It's a tremendous statement because all flesh does come. Everybody prays at some time or other. Even people who claim to be atheists, even people who seem to bristle with hatred for God and opposition to him, have prayed at some time and may yet pray again because it's a basic human instinct to pray. Everybody has prayed. You know, there was a time in my life, a few years ago, when I used to, I don't for some reason do it now, I used to make a point of asking people if they prayed. And sometimes they'd be a bit taken aback, a bit surprised, but occasionally, from time to time, I would have the opportunity of speaking to some very significant people and very important people, and people whose names in a number of cases were household words. And if I got the chance, I would say to them, because they knew I was a preacher, a minister, so they weren't offended, but I would say to them, have you ever prayed? And they would be, yes, taken aback, but the replies were very, very interesting. Almost always. Even the politicians who were brilliant at sidestepping questions would say, yes, I've prayed. And then they would volunteer some situation, some circumstance in which they prayed. Maybe it was a prayer for a very, very sick toddler or young one. Maybe it was a prayer for themselves in some dire danger or peril situation. But yes, they prayed. And if possible, I'd go a little further and say, did God answer your prayer? Uh, yeah, yes, they might say. He, he did answer my prayer. So, did you carry on praying? And then they would get a little embarrassed. Well, no, I can't say I carried on praying. Only sometimes in emergencies. By this time, of course, the person was stiffening up a bit and getting ready to parry any questions. So, but it's quite surprising. Everybody has prayed. And you read endlessly of soldiers who pray, airmen, pilots who pray, people who never prayed much, 
but in great danger, turn to prayer because it's a basic human instinct. This is almost scientific evidence that everyone in some circumstances most naturally needs to pray and praise in some shape or form because we're actually made with this in our constitution. We are made to be praying people. There is a soul within everyone, even if it's at the moment dormant and inactive. So all flesh shall come to him, and in the last day of life, at the very end of the journey, everybody is compelled to answer God. It may be too late ever to have his forgiveness, ever to be reconciled with him, but everyone has to answer to him in the end. O thou that hearest prayer unto thee, shall all flesh come. Now there's a great blockage in prayer, a great barrier that prevents prayer from being answered. And David deals with this. Verse 3, iniquities prevail against me. You see the language? He's putting himself in the position of somebody who wishes to pray or wants to pray or tries to pray, but something is resisting. Iniquities prevail, as a prevail, as a battle on. You want to pray, oh, that God would hear my prayer. I'm now in some desperate situation, some great need. If I had some sense that I could get through, that I could be heard, but there's a pressure against me. That's in the verse. Iniquities prevail. They overcome the prayer. They successfully resist it. They block the way. And there's no sense or sensation that that prayer can be heard. That's the dilemma now which is posed. Iniquities prevail against me. What are iniquities? The Hebrew word is twisted things. Iniquities are perversities, perversions, twistedness. The sinfulness of the human heart. Sinful habits, offenses against God. They get in the way of prayer. They prevent its passage. Unforgiven sin blocks prayer. The very next psalm says it. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Psalm 66, verses 17-18. It's clear. Iniquities prevail against me. These need to be forgiven. Why are some prayers not answered? Because there's no repentance for the iniquity in us, the sinfulness, the rebellion against God, the indifference to him, the setting aside of God, dismissing of him. All the sins 
maybe the lies, the acts of selfishness, whatever they are, so many sins, unforgiven, never taken before the Lord, never dealt with, get in the way of prayer. Now prayer may be answered, even without repentance. Prayer may be answered even without reverence to God. But if it is, it is because God in his kindness is encouraging you to go further and do it properly and repent of sin and yield your life to him and trust in him. So you may for a time over an issue just for the moment, be blessed by God, even though that prayer deserved to be blocked. But this is the normal thing. Iniquities prevail. They overpower me and my prayer. They block it. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Can I explain to you the word purge? No criticism of the King James translation, but the actual word behind this, purge, means this. Thou shalt cover them. Cover them up. It doesn't mean quite what we mean by covering something up. It means God will effectively blot them out and the way that's expressed in the Hebrew is God will cover them so that they cannot any longer be seen they're no longer on your record they will no longer be held against you by God God has covered them up this word your sins are covered up is usually translated in the Bible by another word. Your sins are atoned for. That's what the atoned for word translates, the word for covered up. When Christ died for our sins, to atone for our sins on Calvary, he covered them. He paid the punishment, paid the price, and covered the sin. In other words, he did away with the sin. So purged it is a good way of putting it. Got rid of it. But the actual word is covered. So unforgiven sin gets in the way. But repent of our sin before God and trust in Christ who has paid the punishment for all who trust in him. And they're covered up or purged away. Now verse 4 tells us a little more about prayer. Some prayers can't be heard and answered because they're entirely earthly and selfish. God isn't in the picture. He doesn't figure at all. Do this for me. Make me famous, make me rich, make me something or other. Earthly prayers, showing no interest in God at all. Now look at verse 4. This is a condition about prayer. 
Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Now the picture here is an ancient king. And the king is selecting his courtiers. And he does this from time to time to recruit new servants and new courtiers. And all manner of people audition for promotion to the palace service. And there are various ways in which the numbers are reduced. And finally, people are presented to the king. And they line up with their various, dressed in their best, no doubt, and their CVs at the ready, and the king chooses those who will be with him in his house. But who does he choose from? He chooses from a group of people who've applied for this. They want to be in his palace. They want to be in his service. They want to be loyal to him. They want to do things for him. They want their great ambition to be in the service of the king and his palace. Now the lesson in prayer is this. Are you coming to ask the king for something for you? Give me this, give me that, and I'll be on my way. And I won't trouble you again. And I won't talk to you again or seek an audience or anything else. That's how sometimes people pray. Just give me and I'll be off. No, the prayers that have been answered are the prayers of those who like these would-be courtiers. They come to the king not just to get something because they want to be his. And they want to be close to him and serve him and be loyal to him. That's been put into their hearts. And that's how prayer is answered. What am I praying for? Oh Lord, save my soul. Show me yourself. Let me be a follower, a servant. I'm not worthy. Forgive me my sins. And freely take me because I need to know my God and be reconciled with him. I need to walk with him and be guided by him. I desire to be on the road to heaven. This is the kind of prayer that is answered. Prayer, people who desire the king and the right things, not just what he can give and they're on their way. So what are our prayers like? We need to honour him, respect him, praise him. We need to repent of sin and we need to come to him to pray because first and foremost we want him, Christ, and we want to be his and we want to know him. Those are the chief things. And God will put those things in our hearts if we come to him. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, 
that he may dwell in thy courts. That's what he wants. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. And verse 5, by terrible things. Terrible things? Well, our King James Version is a little old-fashioned. We would translate it today by awesome things. Mighty things. In righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation. And that's what happens when you sincerely pray for forgiveness and for conversion, for blessing by God, trusting in Christ as the only way to have sins forgiven, desiring to be a child of God. Awesome things happen to you. You are changed. You are transformed. I'm an old person now, and I've seen this over the years in so many people. People changed because they desired God and repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. Awesome things happened, first of all, within them. I've seen it all. Violent people become gentle, sensitive people. People who were hopeless liars become honest people and straining for honesty. People who are mean to become unselfish and kind and generous. All kinds of things changed. People who you had never thought would have changed. Proud, proud people becoming humble and teachable by God and open-hearted. These changes are awesome. Nobody on earth can produce them. No medical therapy can produce them, can change character and behavior. Only God, by awesome things, he answers our prayers and changes us and makes us his children. By awesome things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth. And this is important, who art the confidence, the trust. More and more, you see the kind of prayers that are answered. Prayers of faith and trust. We've read our Bibles. We've read about the promises of God and how he promised a savior. We've read the Christmas story, the incarnation, how that savior came. We've read about the passion of Christ and his suffering and death on Calvary, where the God who became man suffered and died to bear away the punishment due to all who would trust in him. We've read about conversion and now we place our confidence and our trust in God. So you come acknowledging him, honoring him, humbling yourself before him, repenting of your sin, desiring to know him before, before you pray for your health, before you pray for your loved ones, and you may pray for all those things 
and he will answer you. But first of all, you come to him and you seek his converting power and you give him your life and as you come, you trust him. You put your trust wholly in him. By awesome things wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence. He responds to trust of all the ends of the earth. And then the psalm continues in wonderful ways to speak of the blessings of Christians. Will you trust him with your life? Will you give him your life? Make a vow, make a pledge. Lord, I'm nothing at all. I bring only my sin-stained life. Forgive me and change me, but I put it into thy hands, O Lord. Take me and make me a child and make thyself known to me. That's the prayer, first of all, that has to be answered before all the other prayers can be made. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all and help us. Teach us to pray, humble us in our hearts. Show us our need, and O oh Lord, draw us in thy mighty love and answer from on high with salvation's blessings. We ask it in the name of our Saviour, for his sake. Amen.